hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. June 11th, 1856, somewhere in eastern Nebraska. The wind came up and the dust blew so fiercely that the travelers could scarcely see one another. Mary said, it looked like the imps of darkness had come to stop us from going. And indeed, it must have worked because the family that young Mary B. Crandall was traveling with became disillusioned and took their loaded handcart and went back, turned around and went back to Council Bluffs, taking with them all of Mary Crandall's belongings. Mary later recorded, what to do, I did not know. There I was thousands of miles from home not one person that knew me, a stranger in a strange land, I did not know anything to do but cry. I stood with my back against a tree, crying, when I noticed a man watching me. So I turned my back to him. In a few minutes, he came to where I stood and asked me if I was going back with those people. And I said, I don't know what I shall do. The audacious stranger walked off and Mary continued crying. Then she noticed the man was again watching her. And this struck her as most inappropriate that he should have such an interest in her. Presently, he walked up to her and he said, well, what are you going to do? Well, sir, Mary replied, I'm going on with the company. If the Lord spares my life, take a handcart into Utah. At that, the stranger said, Come on, you are the girl I thought you were. He then led her to another couple pulling a handcart and asked them to look after her. He then went out and brought her some clothes and said, I will lend you these if you will promise to return them when you get to the valley. Mary's response was, if I live, I will. I'm not sure I would want them back, but anyway. Still, Mary had no idea who this guy was and why he was taking such an interest in her welfare. So she asked Sister Ramsey, who is that man that speaks so much to me and does me so many favors? Sister Ramsey says, well, you don't know? That's our captain. Dan MacArthur. Mary B. Crandall was traveling to Zion in the Daniel D. MacArthur Handcart Company, the second company of 1856 to make that journey. The next morning, Mary boldly walked into Captain MacArthur's tent and told him if he would let her have a handcart, she would haul it herself to Utah. Captain's response. You can't do it, Mary said. Try me and see. 
You plucky little thing, said Captain MacArthur. I will try you. And he gave her a handcart. She loaded it up, strapped everything down that she owned, which wasn't much, on the handcart and set out down the trail following the company. In time, she was joined by two other teenage girls. And Mary said, We were a happy band, traveling to the promised land, singing, Some must push and some must pull as we go marching up the hill. Don't expect me to sing it. You wouldn't enjoy that. On across the plains, Mary and her friends pulled the handcart. They entered Salt Lake City on September 26, 1856, a great, amidst great fanfare and celebration. Why? Because Mary and company had proved, proven that the handcart plan was a success, that it worked. They got there faster with less suffering, less death, less hardship, and by far less expense. As Mary topped Big Mountain and looked down into the Salt Lake Valley for the first time, she said, quote, what a beautiful sight met our eyes after our long journey, a valley in the mountains. The sight, she said, filled my heart with joy and peace, and I did not feel the least bit weary. Mary B. Crandall would be, by her account, the first girl to pull a handcart across the big mountain and into the valley. Why is Mary B. Crandall a hero? I don't know, but at least this. Heroes have to be tough. They have to get back up when they get knocked down. They have to keep going when everything screams, you can't, you're done, you're beat. And not only did Mary get back up, but she kept going all the way, and that with a cheerful and happy countenance. That's a hero. And this story is similar. Just as an aside, I'm sure you already know this, but over the last couple of decades, a lot has been said and sung and written and made into movies about the handcart people. A lot of it tends to be a little overblown because there were 10 handcart companies. And even though it was difficult to pull a handcart, not everybody who pulled a handcart died or suffered as did those in the Willie and Martin companies. And indeed, you should understand that when the Willie and Martin companies were finally rescued and brought in off the plains, Brigham Young was furious because the leaders in charge of them, the missionaries and Elder Franklin D. Richards, had not detained them and stopped them from jumping off onto the plains that late in the season. He was furious, even to the point of rebuking those leaders publicly from the pulpit. And for the years after that, Brother Brigham would not speak of that disaster. Martin and Willie was to the Latter-day Saints in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s what the Donner Party became to the story of the Oregon Trail 
a disaster, a terrible disaster. And then things began to change. Those who survived came together for reunions beginning about the opening of the 20th century with the efforts of individuals like Hannah Lapish and James Blake and, and others, people began to recognize this wasn't a failure. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a disaster. This is where our people were tried and tested. Those who were out there who endured that terrible suffering and who survived and were supported by angels, they found their faith in God. They became heroes because of their adversity. And those saints settled comfortably here in the valley who were called upon by Brigham Young to go out and get them, they proved themselves heroes as well in one of the most heroic rescues, one of the most selfless, sacrificing rescues in American history. And what became initially a great mistake and a lack of judgment transformed or transfigured, if you will, into one of the great legacies of our heritage where so many heroes would come forth. One of those is this young woman. Emily was born in 1836 in England. She grew up with an unusual interest in God. I've told this story many times in Firesides. I'm not sure if I've told it here. If I have, just pretend you haven't heard it. It's like a song. You can hear it more than once. Emily for some unusual reason, was much concerned, she said, about my eternal salvation and felt I would make any sacrifice to obtain it. She asked many questions, but no one could answer her questions. She found her answers and her comfort in the scriptures. In time, the prophet who most fed her soul was Isaiah. She was an unusual girl. She said, I was never weary of reading his prophecies. The glory of the Latter-day Zion that burdened his inspirations possessed for me a charm irresistible. Then when Emily was 12 years old, a cousin came to visit who was a brand new, newly baptized member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she invited all the family to go and visit her new church. Everyone in the family declined Emily said, but someone said, send Em, she'll go. And indeed, Emily set out and walked the five miles. And when she sat in the meeting, she knew instantly she had found what she was looking for. She came home and announced that she wanted to be baptized. Not only was that privilege denied her, but ever after that, she said she was closely watched lest she should be led away by a sect that was everywhere spoken against. Well, this went on for years. And finally, in time, Emily's sister Julia found the faith and was baptized. And Emily somehow managed to sneak away and get baptized 
And the two of them made their decision, Emily and Julia Hill, that they would immigrate to Zion. They took passage, wound up in Iowa City, and were assigned a part of the Willie Handcart Company. Now, the great story of Emily and Julia's heroism certainly did come later, but not the least of it was those first few days when they were pulling a handcart. Because you see, they left Iowa City in July, 1856. They were only about 10 or 12 miles outside of Iowa City. And Emily was in so much pain from blistered and bloody feet and sore muscles. And her sister, Julia, was lying on the side of the trail crying that Julie, Emily said, how in the world can I go on? I have another 1,100 miles to travel. How can I do it? But she said she nerved up and decided to put one foot in front of the other and keep going until she dropped. Well, she made it all the way to Sunday, October 19th, 1856, when the snows began to fall, the wind began to howl, and the blizzard set in across Wyoming. That the Willie Company journeyed on, but not going very far before they ran out of food between fifth and sixth crossings of the Sweetwater in Wyoming. At that point, thanks to the inspiration of Brigham Young and the audacity of George D. Grant and the rescuers, three men set out to find the Willie Company and found them near the sixth crossing of the Sweetwater. They rode in announcing that rescue wagons and supplies were just a few miles ahead of them. As Joseph A. Young and Abel Gar and the others prepared to ride out and go find the Martin Company, Joseph looked down and saw among the sufferers, Emily and Julia, and this toughened young man burst into tears. Why do you cry, Brother Young? Emily asked. Oh, because you look so starved and the provision wagons are miles away. And with that, he reached into his pocket and gave her the only thing he had, an onion. Rather than eat it, Emily held on to it. That night, she saw a man near the fire who appeared to be dying. Emily gave the onion to him. The man would later claim that onion saved his life. Emily and Julia eventually made it into the valley. Julia married well. Emily married a man named Mills, a physician from England. After marrying Mills, Emily had one child, and then Mills went on a mission to England. After four years, he wrote back and said he was not coming home. Then he wanted nothing more to do with her, nothing more to do with the church or his families. He was staying in England. Emily would record this, quote, and this is significant. All that I had hitherto suffered seemed like child's play compared to being deserted by one whom I had chosen to place the utmost confidence. End of quote. 
can only imagine. By now, it was the winter of 1863-64, and the Civil War had driven prices through the roof. Survival was difficult. Emily's house that she lived in with her one child was literally sold out from under her, and she was cast out. One night, when she was so weary with overwork and anxiety and pondering what to do, she knelt in prayer and words came into her mind so clear as if audibly spoken and the words were, trust in God and in thyself. She got up and began to write, opening up her soul and writing poetry. Emily would go on to remarry. She would bear eight more children. She would become a successful businesswoman, a real estate broker, an advocate for women's rights, a woman's suffragette. She would become a very successful woman, cheerful in nature, a champion of the underdog, and one of Zion's great poets, along with Eliza R. Snow. You may not know her name. Emily Hill Mills Woodman C. But you will surely recognize these words that she paid such a price to write. As sisters in Zion, we'll all work together. You get up when you're knocked down. You keep going. You keep trying. You keep faith in God Almighty, and he will bring you out on top of the heap. Again, I don't know if anybody has ever heard of this individual I'm going to share this story with. One evening, not that long ago, but certainly not to the date that I've been talking about, but in the 20th century, a church meeting was called in the old 13th Ward building in Salt Lake City. And the speaker was the venerable old Bishop Millen Atwood. Bishop Millen Atwood had grown up in the Far East as a lad with many responsibilities working the farm when his father suffered ill health. He worked from a tender age to support his father's family. Hence, education was not Millen's privilege. In the year 1840, Millen Atwood heard Joseph T. Ball bear testimony of the gospel, and instantly he believed. He said, something got down into me that has never gone out since. I love that. That says it all. And from there, Millen was set on a course, true and faithful. He helped build the Nauvoo Temple. And when the saints began to go west, he was part of the great wagon-making factory in preparation for the great Mormon exodus of 1846. And from there, he traveled across the plains, both ways, and served numerous missions. In fact, in 1856, when Brigham Young called for volunteers to go out and bring the saints in off the plains, Bishop Millen Atwood was among those. He was an older man now. He went out there 
and he helped them. He was there. He followed the company. He stayed with the company. He helped them leading, lifting, and encouraging. He was faithful. He was tough. He was well-liked by those he led. And now, after a long life of venerable service, we come to the night of that church meeting in the old 13th Ward building. There was in attendance in that meeting a young man about 17 or 18 years of age. He had been born the year Bishop Atwood had brought the saints in from the Willie Company. The young man, it turns out, was enrolled in a night class studying grammar. He had been given an assignment by his teacher to collect and present sentences in class that were not emphasis, were not grammatically correct, and then present before the class corrected versions of the sentences. As he sat in the audience, Bishop Atwood stood up and began to speak, and immediately the young man smiled to himself and began to write. Quote, he said, I am going to get here tonight during the 30 minutes that Brother Atwood speaks enough material to last me for the entire winter in my night school grammar class. I can appreciate that because I've never learned to speak correctly. I speak a little rough around the edges. Just ask my family. The young man wrote down the first sentence and never wrote another. He said, when Millen Atwood stopped preaching, Tears were rolling down my cheeks, tears of gratitude and thanksgiving that welled up in my eyes because of the marvelous testimony which that man bore of the divine mission of Joseph Smith, the prophet of God. He continued, the young man, although it is now more than 65 years since I listened to that sermon, it is just as vivid today, and the sensations and feelings that I have are just as fixed with me as they were the day I heard it. That testimony made the first profound impression that was ever made upon my heart and soul of the divine mission of the Prophet Joseph. I had heard many testimonies that had pleased me and made their impression but this was the first testimony that had melted me to tears under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to that man. End of quote. There is a power, brothers and sisters, not of this world in a true testimony. When you and I learn to skip the rambling travel logs or the thank testimonies, or whatever else we do in fast and testimony meeting, and stand up and boldly declare from our knowledge what we really know by the witness of the Holy Ghost. There is a power in that that attends the worthy, that causes the soul of others to vibrate in harmony and changes hearts. And by the way, who was that young grammar student in the meeting that night? Heber J. Graham. Thank you for listening. 
Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.